Imagine a man, deeply self-important, waking to his day. He throws his legs out of bed, sliding his feet into his fine-fitted slippers, and then pulls on his silky, multicolored house robe. He stands before the mirror and admires himself. Then he goes through his morning regimen, though, let's be honest, he thought he already looked great, and descends for a servant-prepared breakfast along with his wife and children. His wife is still annoyed with him over something he completely unconsciously said last night that belittled her, and his children find him to be a painful bore. They are eating their breakfast in silence, hoping he doesn't talk to them. Everything he says is calculated for effect, even with them. They want to be out of the door and off to school without dealing with him at all. They pile in food and are quickly gone. The servants clear their plates, and our man is now looking at his wife, wondering what it is that she reads uh, so intently. Like the children, though, she finishes her food and, without looking at her husband, without speaking, goes into the other room to be away from him. The man finishes his breakfast alone, the servants waiting. But here's the thing. Our friend, deeply self-important as he is, is nearly impervious to his family's attempts to ignore his existence. After all, self-importance has only one final audience, that wonderful, ever-present audience of one, the self. So our friend finishes his breakfast shoves back roughly from the table, snaps a command at one of the servants, and goes to dress himself for the day. Oh, it will be a lucrative day, he is thinking to himself. He puts on his tunic and cloak and smiles at that handsome man in the mirror. Time to go. Out the door he walks, out through the Roman-style courtyard, out through the portico, and out into the fresh Galilee morning air. A westerly breeze is humming down over the hillsides and feathering the sea. The sun is straight ahead and bright, beautiful. Our friend takes a deep breath in. He walks down the hill from his villa, nodding at neighbors along the way. They, like his wife and children and servants, roll their eyes and turn their backs. He passes past the more middle-class homes of the town descending, tries to favor these folks with a nod, receives the same treatment, perhaps a little worse. Now he comes to the western edge of the city center. He takes the approach of Main Street, past the butcher, past the tailor, past the fishmonger, past the children winding their way to the village school. Everyone affords him the exact same morning greeting— a look away, a rush inside, a shoulder turned, an undisguised affront meant to signify. Our man simply doesn't care. He continues smiling to himself. All of them will pay, he thinks unfiguratively. He arrives. His desk is in the center of the city's central square, fringed by a striped awning that is done up in the imperial colors of Rome. This is a rather daring thing to do. The townspeople hate it. The Roman governor would not recommend it. But taking taxes for them, you might as well go all in. Why be mysterious about his allegiance or his purpose? This is how he has that villa. So what does it matter? 
He sends his assistant to pull a particular file, takes his seat, opens his cash box, gloriously full, and sets out his nameplate before calling the first payer. Levi Bar Matthew, it reads, tax collector under the auspices of his imperial majesty Tiberius Julius Caesar Augustus. This nameplate glints in gold, facing as it does eastward in the direction of the climbing sun, which is also where the head of the line is, incidentally. Our friend smiles ingratiatingly at the first taxpayer. He beckons him forward. Next. Well, the scene that occurs, occurs less than one hour after this. Here are all the elements now in play. Our friend, Levi, or Matthew, already internally calculating the margin he'll be skimming off this morning's take. His assistant running around doing his every bidding. The line of payers filled with hate for him, uh, standing there in the hot sunlight. The general sounds of this central market square buzzing around them all. Then the sound, further off, of a very large crowd. The whole market square turning as one to look that way. The arrival, with his enormous crowd of hangers-on hanging on to him, of Jesus, the teacher from Nazareth. Can you imagine all that? I mean, can you see it all in play? Well, here, and this is personalized, is how Levi, or Matthew, himself wrote about the remainder of that day. Listen. Jesus left a house across town, and as he passed on, he saw me sitting at my desk in the tax collector's office. Follow me, he said to me. And I got to my feet and followed him. Later, as Jesus was in my house, sitting at my dinner table, a good many other tax collectors and other disreputable people came on the scene and joined him, me, and his disciples. The Pharisees noticed this and said to his disciples, Why does your master have his meals with tax collectors and sinners? But Jesus heard this and replied, It is not the fit and flourishing who need the doctor, but those who are ill. Suppose you go away and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. In any case, I did not come to invite the righteous, but the sinners. That was Levi's, or Matthew's, first encounter, first day. And frankly, I can't stop thinking about it. I can't stop thinking about the degree to which the cumulative decisions of Matthew's life became the sort of life that everyone around him passionately hated. And I can't stop thinking about the fact that knowing all that, Jesus thought that Matthew was the perfect sort of person to be a disciple of his and to love with a passionate love. This encounter sets off an instantaneous repentance and following. The personal presence of Jesus makes Matthew invite in everyone he knows and throw a party. You see, to the truly sinful, that is who Jesus is. The one worth following. The doctor who delights in the knowingly sick. 
And so when I think of a New Testament passage outside of the Gospels that I think best personifies the journey Matthew has begun right that moment at the encounter, my thoughts got stuck this week on one particular one. This is from Ephesians 2, and this is, of course, Paul writing. Listen. To you who were spiritually dead all the time that you drifted along on the stream of this world's ideas of living and obeyed its unseen ruler, who is still operating in those who do not respond to the truth of God, to you Christ has given life. We all lived like that in the past and followed the impulses and imaginations of our evil nature, being in fact under the wrath of God by nature like everyone else. But even though we were dead in our sins, God, who is rich in mercy, because of the great love he had for us, gave us life together with Christ. It is, remember, by grace and not by achievement that you are saved and has lifted us right out of the old life to take our place with him in Christ in the heavens. Thus he shows for all time the tremendous generosity of the grace and kindness he has expressed toward us in Christ Jesus. It was nothing you could or did achieve It was God's gift to you. No one can pride himself upon earning the love of God. The fact is that what we are, we owe to the hand of God upon us. We are born afresh in Christ and born to do those good deeds which God planned for us to do. Now, friends, I've already done this once, so I'm going to go ahead and do it again. I want to walk back through that passage in a sort of Matthew personalized voice, voicing his new life. All right, so let's start back at the beginning again, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, but personalized. To me, or to you, to us. Have you done business with the personal, the every individual, the corporate reality that everything that Jesus has done, has accomplished, has been done with you and me and all humanity in mind? It is so much easier to love yourself, to love each other, to love humanity when you've come to grips with the immense personal love of Jesus for all and for every. So, to me, who was spiritually dead all the time that I drifted along on the stream of this world's ideas of living. Ideas of living. Not the real thing. Ideas. For Matthew, for Paul, for us, the life prior to encounter with Jesus looked a lot like that morning of Matthew's that I narrated just before. Self-consumed, tripping over its own feet, obsessed with measures and means that mean nothing in the economy of the kingdom of heaven. We were as if dead and faking our way through a false life. Which doesn't sound so good when I put it that way, does it? To me, who was spiritually dead all the time that I drifted along on the stream of this world's ideas of living and obeyed its unseen ruler, who is still operating in those who do not respond to the truth of God, And by the way, lest we get judgy there, well, the opposite 
when Jesus arrives may instantly occur. They may instantly respond to the truth of God and obey our now seen ruler, that bearded man from Nazareth. All right, let's start again and then we'll just take a run at it. Here we go. To me, who was spiritually dead all the time that I drifted along on the stream of this world's ideas of living and obeyed its unseen ruler, who is still operating in those who do not respond to the truth of God, to me, Christ has given life. Friends, Jesus, the source of heavenly, earthly, temporal, eternal life, the the way of the streams of living water that may flow from within, the one who is not an idea of living, but life himself, the ruler of heaven, the truth of God incarnate. Well, that man, on a day in human history, literally had nothing better to do, because to him, it's the highest thing than to see you, speak to you, and invite you home. To me, Christ has given life. To you, Christ has given life. And not some esoteric or religious-tinged half-life. No! His own life. He came to give us the exact other side of the coin that Paul now lists. In fact, listen to what Paul now says. Listen closely. I lived like that in the past and followed the impulses and imaginations of my evil nature, being in fact under the wrath of God by nature like everyone else. So, in the inverse, what did the life of Jesus come to give us? A life that is free from the past, awake to the present, eternally alive in the future. A life like his that is open and it's aware of the impulses and imaginations of the will of God. A life that is free from wrath and imbued with a whole new nature, his. That's what we have now encountered. But even though I was dead in my sins, God who is rich in mercy because of the great love he had for me, gave me life together with Christ. It is remember by grace and not by achievement that I was saved and has lifted me right out of the old life to take my place with him in Christ in the heavens. And just in case you were nodding your head along with that glorious refrain, sort of sleepwalking your way through the scriptures like we so often do, let me rephrase all that so it's for you. You used to be dead in your sins, impoverished as it regards mercy, loveless as it pertains to anything and anyone, lifeless, alone, graceless, without hope for redemption, firmly ensconced in your broken down life in this fallen down world without hope of heaven. That was you and me and Matthew and Paul and every human being before the intervention of our glorious Jesus. And what about now? Well, now we are forever alive in his righteousness, inestimably wealthy in his mercy, infinitely and personally loved by him, filled with the life of the ages, never alone, swallowed up by his grace, already permanently redeemed, already, right now, set free from ourselves, of this world, and we now actually live with Jesus right there beside him, on the very throne of heaven. That was true for Matthew, for Paul. It is true for you and me, and it is always true forever. 
That's what encountering Jesus does. And by the way, here's what encounters with him continue to do. Listen to the ending. Thus he shows for all time the tremendous generosity of the grace and kindness he has expressed towards me in Christ Jesus. It was nothing I could or did achieve. It was God's gift to me. No one can pride himself upon earning the love of God. The fact is that what I am, I owe to the hand of God upon me. I am born afresh in Christ and born to do those good deeds which God planned for me to do. You see, from the moment that Matthew, or you, or me, encounters Jesus, all of life gets down to its most true, primal levels, like what is real and really true, what he is and what we are, or or better said, what he's going to make of us. You see, he is lavish with his grace and kindness, a grace and kindness we may intimately know his name is Jesus. He is the ultimate gift giver. He desires nothing of us but the open hands, the open heart to receive all. He is love. He is a gentle, proud father. He is the originator of new life and the shepherd who will guide us in the living of that new life. We are meant to act as, let's call them trophies of his goodness, visible expressions of the personal reality of the gospel. We brought nothing to this and have already received everything. We have earned nothing, really brought nothing to bear, contribute nothing that's not his. And here's the best part. We are now utterly new beings, holy and blameless in him. And he has things for us to do now. So just like Matthew, he is saying to me and to you, follow me. My question for us every day, will we go? Thanks for listening.